0: The sermon you are about to hear was preached at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City by the Rev. Dr. Robin Myers, senior minister in one of America's premier liberal Protestant pulpits. At Mayflower, we are an open and affirming peace and justice church where we believe that religion should be biblically responsible, intellectually honest, emotionally satisfying, and socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of Mayflower UCC Church of Oklahoma City and to the preaching and teaching of Dr. Robin Myers.
1: If you'll turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, I'll be reading from the 16th chapter, verses 1 through 8. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. They had been saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? When they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled back. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man, dressed in a white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has been raised. He is not here. Look, there is the place they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. So they went out and fled from the tomb, for terror and amazement had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid." Here ends the reading inspired by God. May God grant to us wisdom and courage for interpretation.
2: First things first, what liberal preacher on earth could possibly resist beginning the sermon on this particular day by saying, he is risen, April fools, I know, that's bad. Now, there are are some preachers who would like to say this on their very last Sunday before retirement, just as Eisenhower warned us about the military-industrial complex on his last day in office. But these clergy would not mean it entirely as a joke, albeit a corny one, and, and perhaps not appropriate, you may be thinking right now, on the church's High Holy Day, because Easter is serious business. This is the morning on which the church has a message desperately needed in a weary, violent, suffering world. But it's not about magic. It's not about cosmic bargains or shortcuts for the chosen. It's not about corpses disappearing and reappearing or blood that had to be shed by God's Son to save us from our sins because that was the Father's plan, making God into what? A cosmic child abuser? Easter is also not about pagan rituals of new life, eggs and bunnies and bonnets. I mean, having the family over for ham loaf is great, but let's not confuse the message of the early church with what can be commercialized on Easter any more than on Christmas. For one thing, we confuse our kids once, while I was giving a children's sermon here years ago, I told the story of Easter morning, and I reached that dramatic moment when the stone's been rolled away, and I asked the kids to tell me what the witnesses saw, and one young man shouted out, the Easter bunny. <laughs> so, um, it's always a good idea to study, to really study the world of the first century, to see what misconceptions we may have about crucifixion and resurrection, and to learn about how the gospel writers created the passion narrative to persuade the Jews that Jesus was indeed the Messiah, but also about how, as decades passed, the divorce between the Jesus sect and the rest of Judaism heated up especially in the Gospel of John, and the story grew and elements were added, like the betrayal of Judas, the so-called blood curse of Matthew, the dialogues with Pilate about the innocence of Jesus. They all sent a clear message that although Rome put Jesus to death, the Jews had done nothing to stop it, so there's blood on everyone's hands. And this, this planted the seeds of anti-Semitism. Historical Jesus scholars remind us that before the seventh decade of the first century, after the birth of Jesus, it was seven decades before the first gospel, Mark, was written, and in all that time, there existed no passion narrative, not in Paul, nor in any of the pre-Pauline material, not in the so-called Q gospel, not in Thomas, not in the Didache, none of the earliest documents contain any extended narrative of the death of Jesus, nor is there any evidence whatsoever that Jesus predicted his own death. This was Passion Week in the church, and on Maundy Thursday, we washed feet here and took communion, and on Good Friday at Cathedral of Hope, there was a remembrance of the arrest, mock trial, and crucifixion of Jesus, during which we heard mostly passages from the Gospel of John. Constantly interrupted by the phrase, now this was done to fulfill what was written in scripture, because that is the point. It's not history we are dealing with in the passion narratives, but a deliverance story that duplicates the Passover narrative, where just as the blood of the Paschal Lamb smeared above the doors of the Israelites saved them from the angel of death passing over them, so now the blood of Jesus shed from the cross, which is metaphorically above the doorway of the whole world, will save all those who believe in him. This is genius. The passion narratives are a step-by-step recasting of the Passover story to make Jesus the new Paschal Lamb. This is important because so-called passion plays have been the source of anti-Semitism for centuries. After Palm Sunday sermons were given, people would sometimes leave churches and kill the first Jew they saw or rape Jewish women or destroy property owned by Jews. It would be better for the church to go back and study the whole history of crucifixion and resurrection in the first century and what it really means to be raised from the dead. As it turns out, there are no images of the crucifixion of Jesus until the fifth century. And the first known image we have is a a piece of graffiti that shows the head of Jesus on the cross as the head of a donkey. And the drawing is meant to be an insult, as in, how do you expect us to take seriously this Lord of yours when he was a peasant who died the most humiliating of all possible deaths? Research by archaeologists and art historians has revealed that all the early images of Jesus depict him as a teacher and a healer, in fact, as a very young shepherd boy tending sheep in an earthly paradise restored by the kingdom of God. He is clean-shaven, without a staff, smiling, looking after his lambs. It's amazing, these images. He's a boy, but by the fifth and sixth century, Rome will turn this smiling shepherd boy into a bearded warrior for God, holding not a staff but a sword in one hand while the other is lifted, two fingers raised, in the traditional victory pose of the conquering Caesars. As for crucifixion, I grew up believing it was a unique way that Rome had put an end to Jesus and his insurrection. Now I know crucifixions were common, that in fact... Often, to put down a rebellion, Rome would crucify thousands. Why? Why would they do that? Because in an honor-shame society, crucifixion is the ultimate shame. You die by suffocation, which is the most humiliating way to die in a culture where breath, ruach, is synonymous with the divine. Then the body gets left on some crossbeam along some well-traveled road. Why? To act as a kind of public service announcement. The message, whatever this guy did, don't do it. So instead of a divine drama being played out, which will ultimately give you and me a cosmic bargain for the forgiveness of sins, Rome did to Jesus what it did to everyone who stepped out of line. The man came and took you away. You were liquidated, but most important of all, you were forgotten, forgotten. To put it in a more modern vernacular, you were disappeared. Death by crucifixion was so shameful in an honor-shame society, so public, so gruesome, that even your relatives would not want to talk about you anymore. The state had made you disappear. I want you to hold this thought so we can come back to it in a few minutes. Those who were crucified were forgotten. The state has spoken, and the memory of this peasant is erased. So how strange it is indeed that today we wear gold crosses around our necks without thinking that this was the ultimate symbol of shame, of capital punishment by the state of the instrument by which uh, the the executed would be erased, uh, permanently deleted from human consciousness. See, none of us would think to put a tiny little electric chair on a chain around our necks or, now that Oklahoma has distinguished itself again, a little gas mask. These are the symbols of the violent normalcy of empire. So what did the first Jesus people do that was so radical? Well, when I tell you, it may not sound nearly as exciting as watching Jesus float out of a tomb, but I promise you that it is. Here's what they did. They remembered. They refused to forget First, when women went to the tomb to practice rituals of grieving and forgiveness, often with a meal that foreshadowed communion, but also later at dinner parties at which Jesus was quite literally toasted. Once, uh, a member of our youth group here, after learning of this tradition of toasting Jesus, held up a piece of bread during communion and said, to Jesus... That is, in fact, the most accurate rendering of the words of institution, to Jesus. It was common to toast famous people, but not someone executed as a common criminal. It was not uncommon in the ancient world to turn people into heroes, if they died a noble death, if they died for truth, justice, and beauty. Socrates, for example, comes to mind. He refused to leave Athens, lest those who accused him of teaching falsehoods and corrupting the morals of the youth might seem victorious. Athletes, as we hail them today, were often hailed as heroes after their death. Philosophers, even youth, if the death was unjustified or involved torture, then there was this template for remembering what were called the noble dead. It's explained in 4th Maccabees, if you want to look it up. Remember, in the ancient world, 85 to 90% of the people could not read or write. So it was an oral, storytelling culture. What was crucial was what you could remember, because to be forgotten, that's the true meaning of death. To be remembered was to live, to be raised up, to be resurrected. But memory is not what it used to be. The printing press allowed us to go back and check the text to see what we had forgotten. But the ancient world operated in a different way. Memory was the idiom of sound. That's why Jesus told parables, because they could be remembered. What's more, nobody thought to ask, now did that really happen? But rather, so what does that mean? Literalism is a very recent invention based on the text, not on the oral tradition. That's why if you're going to understand the gospel, you need to understand rhetoric. Because memory in the ancient world was rhetorical. Storytellers created what one scholar calls a memory space. Think of the Vietnam Memorial Wall. It is a physical memory space. You go there, you find a name, you touch it, and you probably start crying. To create a rhetorical memory space in the first century required the telling of a story about the death of the suffering, innocent one. In a way, your audience would find persuasive, even unforgettable. Life in the first century was short and often brutal, and earthly justice seems so flawed, and so much that happened was so profoundly unfair, that the ultimate act of resistance to the empire is not to forget. But I ask you, has that changed, really? You can't see our communion table because it's not in its normal place, but I can see it up here, and across the front of it it says, do this in remembrance of me. Now, remember the text you just heard a few moments ago, the first memory space ever created about this Jesus that the church refused to forget is three women who go to this metaphorical tomb. And let's be clear, Easter is first and foremost the gift of female intuition. Without women, there would not only be no nice things, there would be no church. Women intuit the resurrection, that's number one, and then they have to try to explain it to recalcitrant men, which proves that nothing has changed. They go early in the morning, which is a holy time of new beginning, but they worry that they'll not be able to move this stone, this heavy Rock, a metaphor for all the violence and death and senseless suffering that seems so immovable in the world. They see a vision that is confirmed in the voice of a stranger who tells them essentially to believe what they've already intuited. And then comes the best, the most amazing, the most unlikely ending in what was the world's first gospel. So they went out and fled from the tomb, for terror and amazement had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Well, it did not take long for the guy scribes to go to work on what they considered a lousy ending to the greatest story ever told. We get both the shorter ending and the longer ending of Mark copied and pasted, or in this case, forged, tacked on, so that the story will have, you know, a real ending full of definitive statements about eternal salvation and miraculous appearances to men, whose story would then be credible in a patriarchal world, followed by the commissioning of 11 men, Judas is no more, and finally and regrettably, some signs of true believers speaking in tongues, drinking poison, and handling snakes without harm. See, it did not take the church long to confuse miracles with magic. Now this is a real man's ending, I'm telling you, because, I mean, come on, three women who said nothing because they were afraid? Way is that to end the gospel? But what are they afraid of? That no one will believe them? Hmm that they cannot even express what they have intuited because it's beyond the limits of language, maybe. Or, and this might be the most likely source of their fear, because to remember is to be obligated. That's why just once I want to hear a preacher say on Easter morning, not he is risen, but, oh no, he's back. <laughs> to be remembered is to be resurrected. On the contrary, to be forgotten is to be dead. It's why we teach history, so that it will not be forgotten and repeat itself. You know why our teachers are still going to walk out tomorrow? Why they must walk out tomorrow? Because they have not forgotten. And no last-minute legislative ploy is going to make them forget the long, tortured, shameful history of neglect when it comes to our public education system. Forget those kids? Nope. Do you know why we sometimes begin worship here by reading that apology to American Indians who were the first custodians of this land? So we will not forget Do you know why we advocate for women's rights, for gay rights, for the poor and forgotten among us? So we will not forget. The city council said, we need to get these panhandlers off the medians, please. It does not make us look like a big league city. Maybe they will disappear and be forgotten. Nope. People of faith are called to create memory spaces because we know that amnesia is the most powerful weapon in the arsenal of the empire. Racism in America, I think that's old. The myth of white supremacy, no. The empire says, forget about it. I never owned any slaves. Jesus of Nazareth, that that name does ring a bell. I think we liquidated him. Time to move on, people. You should all get out more. Don't dwell on such unpleasant things as crucifixion, whether by sword or by debt, and especially forget about the suffering part. Suffering is so unpleasant. Just show up for the party. Forget what the empire did to him and what the empire continues to do to people just like him. Dress up and praise him. Don't dress down and follow him. We have agreed to have him frozen in stained glass and available once a week in the comfort of your local church, a.k.a. forgotten. Nope. In fact, you know, I've gotten real fond of this word, nope. I owe this to Lori. She says it all the time. And we routinely steal steal each other's words if they work, In fact, the folks at Merriam-Webster's Dictionary, you know, they always select the word of the year. This year, it's actually a phrase. It's post-truth. I want to nominate a simple word as the Easter word of the year. Nope. That's it, nope. You see how effective that is? Just one syllable, guttural, unambiguous, and the essence of resistance. We could even use it as a call and response. So I say, I'm a lawmaker, and I say, let's forget about poor kids and just educate rich kids, and you say, nope. I say, let's forget about the earth as it cries out to be tended instead of destroyed, and you say, nope. I say, let's forget about teaching art, music, drama, and dance for the good of the souls of our kids, and just all of us try to buy as much stuff as we can until we die, and you say, nope. I say... Let's forget about the future altogether and how to make it better after we're gone because God's going to destroy it anyway on his own timeline and all he's going to do is save all the born-again white people. And you say, nope. I say, let's ignore those kids from Florida who claim to know exactly what it means to die in school. Well, I don't know why that would be because they're just trying to be celebrities for a day and they're too stupid to know that what we need are even more guns. And you say, nope. I say let's be ruled by a new Caesar in America, a narcissist, an abuser, a sycophant, a compulsive liar, a dangerous and lonely child trapped in the body of an adult with his finger on the nuclear button, and you say, nope. Well, I could go on. <laughs> uh, You all need to get to brunch. (laughs) So just remember this about Easter 2018. Our word is nope, which rhymes with hope, but must in fact come before it. To be remembered is to be resurrected. We could even write new eulogies for the church that say, he is remembered, we are obligated. I'm gonna work on this. Which brings me to the end of this sermon and to one last, old, very strange word, alleluia. It's really kind of a strange word. And you have to admit, you've been singing it for years and you don't really have any idea what it means. Alleluia. Maybe, just maybe, alleluia means we shall not forget. And in singing it, we shall all be raised together joyfully obligated by our remembering. Can you say, Alleluia? Alleluia. Again? Alleluia. One more time. Alleluia. Do you know what you just did? You created a memory space. Kind of leaves you speechless, doesn't
0: it? You've been listening to the preaching and teaching of Dr. Robin Myers, Senior Minister of Mayflower Congregation on UCC Church of Oklahoma City. More information about the church can be found at mayflowerucc.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. Worship services every Sunday are at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m., with adult education classes at 10 a.m. And a full church school for all ages is available during the second service. Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd Street, a
1: block west of Portland. Thank you for listening.